here, so I'm going to stand here. Okay, I'm just going to stand here so that I don't block the slides because I do, I do have a few slides that are coming up. So I'll stand here. Can you all see me? Okay, very good, very good. Let's pray before we start. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you with all of our hearts for the word of God. We thank you for the events that you have clearly outlined in scripture. And as we study, study particularly the book of Revelation combined with the prophetic understanding of Jesus in Matthew 24, Give us a clear mind and give us a deep understanding of your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so who here, I was just going to ask you to raise your hands, but who here believes that Jesus has a promise and that he will come again? Who here believes that? Believe in Jesus' second coming? Okay. Who here believes that Jesus is coming again soon? All right. Who here believes that Jesus is coming in our lifetime? Okay. Not as many, but I still see hands. Very good. Now, you know, all of us have heard of this promise before, that Jesus will come again. And I'm sure we've all wondered before as well, when is Jesus coming? If soon is soon, then why hasn't Jesus come yet? What is taking so long? Now, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Revelation chapter 10. So Revelation chapter 10 is where we'll be reading primarily from, so I won't have those texts on the slides, okay? So Revelation chapter 10 and we're going to start in verse 5. If you're there, say amen. Okay, Revelation 10, verse 5. It says, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted his hand up to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, and the earth and the things that are therein, and the sea and the things that are therein, that there should be time no longer. What does he swear in solemn oath? What does he swear? At the end of verse 6, it says that there should be time no longer. Now, what is the longest time prophecy in Daniel? 2300 days. Yes. When does the 2300 days end? You should know this, salt students. When does the 2300 days end? When does time run out? 1844. Time runs out in 1844. So, what is this angel saying? She's saying that after 1844, prophetic time would run out. In other words, after 1844, there would never be an exact time or a message again based on prophetic time. Now, let me just show you a quote by Ellen White. This is from the Michigan-Jackson camp, Jackson-Michigan camp meeting. And there were certain groups who were preaching, you know, that close preparation would take place at a certain specific time. And so Ellen White commented on this, and this is what she said. She says from 10MR to 70.1, Our position has been one of waiting and watching, with no time proclamation to intervene between the close of prophetic periods in 1844 and the time of our Lord's coming. So anyone who tells you, you know, the, the Sunday law is going to happen at a certain time, last seven last place at this time, second coming is at this time, anyone who can tell you a specific time, is a direct, they are going with a direct violation of what the angel says in Revelation 10 when he lifts up his hand and swears to heaven. Because the angel, and also Ellen White, says here that from 1844 to the second coming, there would never again be a time prophecy that is specific. Does that make sense? If you understand, say amen. All right. So Ellen White is clear. We are not you know, looking at certain, like a certain date, but we're just waiting for events to occur. Now, I'm sure all of you know this, but when you look at Matthew 24, and Matthew 24 basically is 
a grocery list of end-time events, you see. Jesus says, you know, um, these are the events that are going to lead up to my second coming. There's wars and rumours of wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, persecution, false prophets, iniquity shall abound, sin shall abound. And finally, he ends by saying that the gospel shall be preached to all the world and then the end shall come. And what Ellen White told us before, together with what we see in Matthew 24, that there is no specific set time, right? There's no specific date. And if you look at all these lists of events, every single one has been fulfilled already. Everyone, you, we see everyone in the world right now. So then it leaves this question. If God is not waiting for a specific time, like 1844 anymore, and He's not looking at these events to happen, then what is God waiting for? And why hasn't Jesus come yet? That's the question we ask. Because if the major issue is not 58 more earthquakes or five more false prophets, then what is the issue that's at hand? Why is God not here yet? Why, if it's not a calendar of events that like Ellen White says, what's taking Jesus so long? Now, you're still in Revelation 10, right? We're going to continue reading in Revelation 10. So the next verse, Revelation 10, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So what is God waiting for? According to verse 7. It's the mystery of God to be finished. Now what's the mystery of God? If you can turn your eyes to Colossians 1, 26 to 28. I'll read. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. To whom God would make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is in you, sorry, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So what is the mystery of God, according to Colossians 1? It is Christ in you. The mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is Jesus, what is Jesus waiting for? If Jesus is not waiting for 58 more earthquakes, not waiting for um, the economy to crash, he's not waiting for famines and pestilences, if he's not waste, waiting for all these signs, and we are sure that these signs are going to happen, right? If he's not waiting for all that, then he's waiting for Revelation 10 verse 7, which is the mystery of God to be finished. And that's the last part in verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world and then shall the end come. That is what God is still waiting for. You know, before these events can happen, or rather before these events finish happening, there must be certain events that happen within our church as well. And you know, when you read Revelation, you, you, you hear, you read of these angels, you know, the four angels holding back the corners, the winds of strife of heaven, right? How long will they hold? Do you remember? How long will they hold the four corners of the earth, hold back the winds of strife? Till the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. What is the sealing? You all must study Revelation more, but what is the ceiling? The ceiling is basically a settling into the truth so that you will not be moved. That is what the ceiling is, okay? So when God is trying to, let me go back, but when God is waiting for the mystery of God to be finished, He's waiting for that ceiling to happen so that the, the gospel can be preached to the whole world. He's waiting for people in the world for this group of people in the world who love God so much and don't care about the world, that they would reveal His loving character of Christ in them. 
that they would want to go home so badly that they are passionate about preaching, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. That is what God is waiting for. That is what Paul says is the mystery of God. So when you look at Matthew 24 and you see all these signs, right? We think that all these deceptions, wars and everything must happen and then it ends from all that in order with the gospel being preached to the whole world. And even as Ellen White says, you know, in the quote I showed you, our position is waiting and watching, right? And we've gotten so used to this term, we are waiting and watching. We're waiting for Jesus to come. We are waiting for his, his soon return. You know, live life like there's no tomorrow because Jesus is coming soon. We are waiting for him to come back. And we've gotten so used to this term, but the reality, friends, is Jesus is not waiting. Sorry, we are not waiting for Jesus, but Jesus is waiting for us because of this. You know, all the other signs have come already. All the other signs, you've seen them. I know they may not be as, you know, uh, as, as, as concentrated in some sense, as they should be. But the signs have come. The last one is the one that hasn't. So Jesus is waiting for us. We are waiting for Him, yes. But reality, He's waiting for us. You know, I love this quote by Mark Finley. It's actually one of my really favorite, my, my all-time favorite quotes. He says that Jesus is waiting for a generation that hates this world enough and loves Jesus, loves Him enough that they just want to go home. Jesus is waiting for a generation that is so committed to Christ that Christ lives in their hearts, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus lives in their hearts and they are able to reveal to a darkened world the light of Christ. Jesus is waiting for a group of people, for a generation who reveal the loving character of Jesus before a waiting world. You know, God conditions the second coming to the work of his people. He doesn't leave it up just to natural disasters, to worldwide famine, to what the papacy is doing. He doesn't leave it all to that. He ultimately leaves the condition and the timing of the second coming up to his people. You know, the faster we get the work done, the faster the gospel goes, the faster Jesus comes, the faster we get to go home. And I don't know about you, but I really want this world to end suffering. I want suffering to end. I, I hate that I have to struggle with you know, sin and suffering and all the trials and you know, sadness that I see around me. I just want it to end. But the problem is, church, that our generation, God's people right now, loves the world too much and nobody wants to go home. And that is the sad reality of our Laodicean church as described in Revelation. You know, we want to get places in our lives. We can, all we can think of is, what should I study next? What job is the best for me? What should my children do? We, we worry about all these things and we look to the world so much, so much that our church doesn't want to go home. And we are heading towards being just another generation that fails. You know, Oh, my slide is not working. But oh, yes, you know, <laughs> we are like this child. A child who has, you know, so much fun playing outside that he, doesn't just, he just doesn't want to go home. And they are whining, they are throwing tantrums, they are angry because playing is so much fun. But as parents, or not as parents, but parents know better. Parents know that, you know, their child is dirty, he's hungry, he's tired, home is better. And we are like that, this child. 
So we are stuck on earth. We are stuck here because Jesus cannot come. He wants to come, but he cannot come because his people don't want him to come. That is the reality of our church. And this, this was the dilemma that I was facing for a really long time when I was preparing this sermon because I wanted to go home so badly. From the moment, from the moment I learned, discovered, understood that there was such a promise, that there was a second, second coming, I wanted to go home. But at the same time, I became discouraged so badly as well because I asked myself, how can I finish this work? How can I, you know, as, as I said earlier, how can it be that the faster I work, the faster the gospel goes, the faster Jesus comes? How can I do that? Because I have you know, trouble talking to my neighbor who lives across the house from me. I can't, I, I'm scared of going canvassing just like the salt students do. I am, it takes me like nine months just to have Bible study with one person. But at the end of that Bible study, it doesn't even mean that the person that I'm studying with, you know, is changed. All of this, as I was looking at it, as I was asking myself, how can it be that the gospel will go anywhere at all? And I saw the insufficiency in myself. I saw the insufficiency in everyone else. And I thought to myself, there's problems everywhere. How can the gospel go to every kindred, every nation, every tongue, every people? How will it go anywhere at all? And the dilemma began to grow and grow. And as I prayed, God helped me to understand this. Now you're still in Revelation 10, right? We're going to read Revelation 10, verse 8 to 10, okay? Revelation 10, verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. Verse 9, And when I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took, verse 10, the little book out of the angel's hands and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, but as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Does anyone know what event this is in history? Okay. So what, first of all, what book is this that was sweet in the mouth but bitter in the belly? What book was this? It was the book of Daniel, I heard it. So what was this event then when people studied the book of Daniel which was sweet in their mouth but became bitter in the belly? We are back in 1844. You know, 1844 is when William Miller started preaching in the United States. And there was this huge Advent awakening around the world. You know, back then, there were no Seventh-day Adventists yet. There was only Methodists, Baptists, Episcopalians, Congregationalists, people from no denomination as well. But, you know, through, through this group of people, a great revival swept through the world. And it went from South America to England to Germany to the Middle East. They believed that Jesus was going to come in 1843 and 1844. Hundreds of people believed that Jesus was coming that year. And so when they ate the book of Daniel in their mouth, it was sweet. But when he didn't come, that's when it became bitter. Now, I'd like you to imagine that you were there, October 22, 1844. That you are there in New England, in Hampton, New York, when William Miller just preached so powerfully all across America, and you are part of that great Advent awakening. I'd like you to imagine now with me that you are part of that great 
Early Adventist Church. And you are there that night, October 22, 1844. It's 5 o'clock. The sun is just about to set. You're there with your family. There's husband, there's wife, there's children. And as you're sitting around that night, you believe that Jesus is going to come. You really believe it. You hang up your chart on the wall because you want to emphasize in the minds of your children, Jesus is coming. You know, we are done with the head of gold, the breast and, the breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, brass, sorry, legs of iron. And you say, children, look, we are in the toes of the great image. We are there. Jesus is coming tonight. And you say, look, look, children, he's coming. And you're sitting there and your little son comes up and he says, Mama, Papa, are we going to see Grandpa again? And you say, yes, yes, we're going to see Grandpa. Because in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17, 16 and 17, it says, The Lord himself shall descend with a shout and the voice of the archangel, the trump of God and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Grandpa is going to come out of the grave. You are going to see Grandpa. And you and your family can't wait. But Jesus doesn't come. 10 o'clock, he doesn't come. 11 o'clock, he doesn't come. And when the clock strikes midnight, he doesn't come. You don't know what to say to your children. Your partner is crying all night. You just want to be alone. And you sit on your chair because you don't know what to tell your children the next morning. Because you all thought Jesus was going to come. You know, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was born out of a misunderstanding of prophecy. And so many people ask, how can the Seventh-day Adventist Church be the remnant church, be the last-day movement to finish God's work if we misunderstood prophecy and that's how we begin? But let me take you back to another disappointment, to another movement that was born this way. The year is AD 31. The disciples believed as well that Jesus was going to set up his everlasting kingdom. They believe that Jesus was going to have victory over the Romans, that Jesus was going to set up his messianic kingdom, right? You know that Jesus, they, the disciples believe that Jesus was going to be the king. But as they saw Jesus going to the cross, as they saw Jesus' nails, the nails going through his hands, and then the crown of thorns going on his head, and then finally they see his bloodied body come, come off the cross, how do you think they felt as well? Because they saw Jesus coming as a king. Now, were, they, were there prophecies in the Bible that Jesus would be crucified in the Old Testament? Yes, of course. Did the disciples understand this? No, they didn't. They didn't see Jesus as what the Bible said. And so the disciples were bitterly disappointed. And the next day after the crucifixion, they all gathered. And that was the, that was the darkest Sabbath they ever experienced. And then as they stayed there and they gathered in the upper room, you know, they were so disappointed. But Jesus was then resurrected from the dead. He spent 40 days with them. And at the end, they looked to the sanctuary and Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit. And on Pentecost, 3,000 people were baptized. You know, the New Testament Apostolic Church, the church of the original disciples, they came out from a misunderstanding of prophecy as well. God's faithful believers were disappointed back then and they looked to the sanctuary and God raised them up. And so fast forward, God raised up another movement as well. We're going to read, continue reading in Revelation 10, verse 11. So we're continuing in Revelation 10, 11. 
And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. This is after they ate the book that was sweet and bitter, right? Jesus tells his disciples the same thing. In Matthew 28, 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Notice, in both cases, out of disappointment, you prophesy again. Did the New Testament church prophesy again? Did the New Testament church prophesy again? Yes. Would God's last day church prophesy again? Of course. Now, don't miss this, friends, because this is, this is a bit complicated, but it's very, very important. Revelation 10, two settings, okay? When the, mouth, when the book was bitter, sweet in the mouth and bitter in the belly. Great disappointment of the disciples, prophesied to the whole world. Great disappointment of 1844, again, to prophesy to the whole world. How are we to prophesy to the whole world? How is the gospel going to go anywhere? How are we going to solve the, the solution to the dilemma of what I was having? What happened in the disciples' day that hasn't happened today? Pentecost. That's the thing that has not happened today. You know, as I prepared for this sermon, all I knew that was that we had a huge problem. I was just so caught up in this dilemma. How are we going to preach the gospel to the whole world? How is it possible? One person who cannot even talk to her neighbor, how is she going to be part of that work to preach the gospel to the whole world? That was my dilemma. And as I studied Revelation, God was showing me that I had the solution just right in front of my face and I didn't want to take it. You know, God, He began to show me that the, the greatest need of the world is the power of the Holy Spirit. And I began to repent because I said, God, I've been trying to do Christianity without you. Christians who try to be Christians without the Holy Spirit is ridiculous. And that's what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to minister without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Trying to minister, trying to do all that God called me to be. And yes, I was struggling and asking God for mercy and He was blessing me. But it was not to the utmost, fullest power that He could have done. Now, what's more amazing is that when you read about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and the Old Testament, you find Him being more present in the New Testament. And the power of the Spirit also is more manifest in the early church. So I'm going to show you in John chapter 16 on the slide about what is interesting about the Holy Spirit. This is very, very interesting about what Jesus says. Okay, John 16 verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, who is Jesus talking to here? Who is Jesus talking to here? His disciples. Who are his disciples today? Us, you, me, that's right. So, now watch this carefully. So when Jesus starts, nevertheless, I tell who? You, us, okay? I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go not away. For if I, that I go away, sorry. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto who? You. But if I depart, I will send him to who? You. 
Now watch this. When He is come to you, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He will convict the world. Friends, do you realize what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is not saying when the Holy Spirit comes on the entire world, then the entire world will be convicted of sin. He is saying when the Holy Spirit comes to you, then the world will be convicted of sin. He is saying that when the Holy Spirit comes to you individually, then the whole world will be convicted. Now you may ask the question, and we asked the question just now, how is the gospel supposed to go to the entire world? It starts with you, individually, personally. And that was my dilemma. How can one person affect the whole world, right? This is what Jesus was trying to help the disciples to understand. And he's helped me to understand as I was preparing as well. That when the Holy Spirit comes to you individually and personally, then the whole world will be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Can you say amen to that? The Holy Spirit coming to you. Jesus is trying to teach the disciples that when the Holy Spirit is unleashed individually, personally, in a person's life, then the entire world can be impacted by one individual. Now you may think, how is that possible? How is that possible that when the Holy Spirit comes to one person, the whole world is affected? Let me show you this. You know, in the, the word comforter, the word Holy Spirit here in John 16, is the word parakletos. The word Holy Spirit, parakletos, is a very interesting word in Greek because it means someone who comes right next to you. That's what parakletos means. Someone who comes right next to you. So, Jesus, think about this, okay? Jesus has said, I have to go away, okay? When I go away, I'm going to send the omnipresent Holy Spirit. You know what omnipresent is? Omnipresent means the Holy Spirit is present everywhere. In every single one of us, we can have the Holy Spirit. But when I send the, Holy, the omnipresent Holy Spirit, then He gives a word for the Holy Spirit, parakletos, okay? Which is a paradox because the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, but apparently He's also right next up to you. Do you see that? He's omnipresent, but Parakletos, he's also next up, up next to you. This was something that Jesus was trying to teach his, his disciples and teaching us as well. That the Holy Spirit is a very personal God. And I'm going to show you this very quickly. If you want, you can write the verses down, but I won't read them. In Acts 2, 4. Acts chapter 2, verse 4 describes the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 8 verse 39, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. Acts 11 verse 12, the Spirit bade me. Acts 11 28, they were signaled by the Spirit. Acts 16 verse 7, the Spirit did not prevent them. Friends, I want you to understand something very powerful, and that is the Holy Spirit is a very personal God. And Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament. And so what God has been trying to teach us is that the Holy Spirit is a personal God, yes, but before there can be a second coming of Jesus, there has to be a second coming of the Holy Spirit. Before there can be a second coming of Jesus, there must be a second coming of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, Parakletos. And this is what God has been waiting for to empower His people to do a work that is impossible for men to do so that the whole world can see that God is the one who does it. 
And let me show you that if we don't pray for the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit is little speaking of, then there is spiritual declension, there is darkness. Now take your Bibles, it's not on the screen, so take your Bibles and go to Acts chapter 19. This is going to be one of our last passages. Acts chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 1. So here, Paul is the one who's um, having this experience and he's coming across this church who's in a very odd condition. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. Are you there? Say amen. All right. Acts 19, verse 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. So by the way, Ephesus, right, already had a church for five years. And so Paul... Hello? All right. Paul comes to Ephesus here in Acts 19, verse 1, and see what Scripture says next. Verse 2. He said unto them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. So, Paul is here, and he's finding some disciples, and he's a bit shocked. So he's probing, he's trying to ask some questions to find out what's going on. And now, just think about this, okay? Because, yeah, think about what kind of situation would cause Paul to ask this question. Because it's not very usual that Christians, unless you're Pentecostal or you speak in tongues from those evangelical churches, but it's not very often that we ask this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? We don't really ask that, right? So, what is going on here in this situation that makes Paul ask this question? And so he asks, and he's trying to get to the root of this issue, and then they are scratching their heads and they're like, we never even heard that there's such a thing as the Holy Spirit. And he understands, and he, and he gets to ascertain the cause, and he, he discovers that they don't even have an experience of what's going on. And so he elaborates verse 4. I'm going to read verse 4. Acts 19 verse 4. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. That's the end of verse 7. The Bible is trying to teach us here that just as Jesus started his church with twelve people, this church of Ephesus is still in its infant stage. This church was not growing. It should have grown. It should have. Because, as you see in verse 7, the men were only 12. Paul was so shocked, and this is why he was asking these questions. He was so shocked because the church was in a prime area. Ephesus was in a prime area. And they were there for five years already. So they sh there should have been greater fruit, to fruit. They should have grown. And so he begins, to lead, he begins to lead them in that understanding of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. And so he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when the diverse were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And catch this, this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. They continued for two years. 
right? And what was the result? Everyone in Asia, Jew or Greek, everyone within two years, everyone in Asia Minor heard about Jesus. Friends, when we begin to pray for the Holy Spirit individually in our lives, we will begin to see explosive kinds of growth. We will not see KL converted. We will not just see Malaysia converted. We're going to see the whole of Asia converted because within two years, that's what happened from 12 to whole of Asia Minor, Jews and Greeks. And the reason why our growth is so slow is because we have not been praying for the Holy Spirit, but more specifically, for the Holy Spirit individually and personally in our lives. And these are the things that God has been waiting patiently to do. Patiently for His people to strive, to understand, to desire more and more of the Holy Spirit. And what's even more amazing, right, is this quote that I'm going to show you. This is taken from 1MR 180.2. When the third angel's message shall go forth with a loud voice, the whole world shall be lightened with His glory, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon His people. Well, don't, don't miss this. The revenue of glory has been accumulating for this closing work of the three angels' message. Of the third angels' message. The prayers that have been ascending for the fulfillment of the promise, the descent of the Holy Spirit, not one has been lost. Each prayer has been accumulating, ready to overflow and pour forth a healing flood of heavenly influence and accumulated light all over the earth. In other words... All those prayers have been accumulating over years and generations for the fulfillment of the promise, the descent of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost 2.0. Not a single prayer has been lost. Not one. Every prayer has accumulated and is ready to pour forth the healing influence, the, the light all over the world. Do you understand what this means? This means that if we are the generation to finish Christ's work, that we can be the recipient of this accumulated glory over tens and tens and tens of generations. We can see the ordinary become extraordinary because God has been keeping generations and generations and generations of prayers, powerful experiences, prayers that people have been lifting up to God and we can be the generation to receive all of this. And God is calling for His people now, never before, to start yearning for this, to start yearning for the Holy Spirit. Things are happening in our world today. And God is saying, wake up, you know, watch and pray. This is the time. Start getting yourself back together. Start getting back to Jesus. Open your heart and say, Lord, what are you saying to me today? What is your Spirit saying to me today? I need something more than I have and I need this experience that he's waiting to give. Now, I don't know what your spiritual life has been. I don't know how, where you come from. But I know that whoever it is, the promise is still the same. Ask and it shall be given unto you. You know, if you ask for the Spirit of God, God offers it. And the revenues of prayer have been accumulating for generations. It's all there. God has been waiting to pour out all this upon a generation who is ready. And it's up, for, up to us to see whether we are ready. This is a time that God is calling us and he's, Jesus is just waiting. And I, I don't want to be another generation that fails. Of all the, of all the, the generations that has come before, 
our time, they are generations that have failed because Jesus has not come. If they succeeded, we would be born in the kingdom of heaven, but we're not. I, I don't want to be another generation that fails. I want to be that generation that finishes the work, of, the work of God, that can see Christ come in His glory. Do you? Now, I'm going to invite the girls up to sing. And this is a song that I really like. And as they sing, I just want you to ponder upon the words of the song and see that redemption really draws nigh and we are going home soon.
music plays, I just want you to think and remember that Jesus is indeed coming soon. That there is a promise that so many of us have forgotten and that He is coming soon. That our world, that our generation is a generation that doesn't want to come home. And we are the Laodicean church. But God has been ready since 1844 and He's ready now to pour out this accumulation of the Holy Spirit on all of us. But because we don't want Him to come, we don't want to take that promise. You know, so many of us are still looking to the world. We're still looking. But God, He's had enough. It's enough, friends. Jesus has waited for us enough. Jesus has been waiting long enough. We cannot live, continue living as usual. We cannot continue doing business as usual. We cannot do ministry as usual. We cannot just live our lives and build our careers as usual. We cannot plan to be here for another generation as usual. We are not here on earth just to work, but to finish God's work. And Jesus has been waiting and waiting. You know, I believe that every time we come into God's house, we need to leave with a brand new decision. And if you're someone who is desiring and yearning for a new experience with God, if you're someone who says, I need the Holy Spirit in my life, I want more of the Holy Spirit, I want that accumulated prayer of generations and generations of the Holy Spirit being the greatest gift. If you want to receive a new experience and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to ask you to stand up and come to the front because we are going to pray for a, a very specially for God to pour out His Spirit. You know, oftentimes God will pour out, a, He will open up a special window of opportunity and He will pour out His Spirit during that time in a very extraordinary way. Don't miss what could be a very crucial opportunity of what God has installed. It was when Paul was willing to lay his hands upon the people that they began to experience something like they never experienced before. And God has enough of the Holy Spirit for everyone. And if you want to be part of that generation as well, if you don't want to be another generation that's just waiting for Jesus to come, if you have enough of Jesus waiting for you, I'm going to ask you to stand and come to the front that you can be part of that generation who finishes the work. That you can tell me as well when you stand and you can tell God that you are tired of waiting and that you want to be part of that generation that finishes the work. And that you want Jesus to come because you are tired of this world and you just want to go home. If you're going to heed that call, Bow your heads with me as I pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that the sign that takes place right before you come is that the gospel goes to the whole world. But God, that's just another sign that your Holy Spirit is present with your people. And the reason why the gospel is going to the entire world is because your Spirit is with us and that is the realest sign of all. Father, I pray for everyone here who is standing, his, whose hearts are open, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, that you will give us all a refreshing 
Let her reign experience that our hearts are yearning for right now. And I know, Father, that it will be real. So I pray, Lord, that as we ask daily, daily, Father, give us the desire in our hearts to yearn and ask for more of the Holy Spirit to help us with our weakness, for our witness as well, for our works, that we can ultimately glorify you. Help us, Father, to be Christians who are Christians because of your Holy Spirit. And I ask, Father, and I pray for a spirit, special, special blessing. And I know Jesus is, is praying for us as well. That everyone here can be recipients of His intercession right now at this moment. Help us, Father, to be this last generation so we don't have to see another generation go and fail and wait some more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.